welcome to DeFi by Design, where we talk all things blockchain and cryptocurrency, while striving to educate, empower, and enrich. Welcome back to the DeFi by Design podcast brought to you by The Rollup, a media and education company that provides high quality, actionable insights and information on all things layer twos, rollups, DeFi, scaling solutions, new protocols, juicy alpha and insightful research. We're excited to share with you the latest trends and development in the DeFi space so you can stay informed and ahead of the curve. Without further ado, we will jump right into this episode with a brief update on some of our current sponsors. Buffer Finance is a non-custodial, exotic options trading platform built to trade short-term price volatility and hedge risk of high leverage positions. They are a leader in the arbitrum charge taking over on layer twos and totally understand the potential of blockchain technology and how it's transforming the finance industry. They are proud to support DeFi by design. If you're looking for a platform to trade short-term options, look no further than Buffer Finance. With their innovative tech, easy to use platform, they're at the forefront of the options tech in arbitrage. Visit their website, buffer.finance, and take a look at all their options. ZKX is a leader in the decentralized derivative DEX market on StarkNet. StarkNet is a cutting edge technology built to help scale Ethereum using ZK rollups. They understand the potential of scaling, blockchain tech, and how it's going to change the world of leverage trading. ZKX protocol is happy to be on testnet and will be on mainnet very shortly. Check out ZKX protocol on Twitter, as well as on Crew3 to get more information about what's going on on StarkNet. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to DeFi by Design podcast, episode 99, one away from 100. What a journey it's been, and we're excited today to dive into a topic that we've been going on about for at least six months now, perhaps even close, getting close to a year, which is the development of Layer 2, specifically on StarkNet. What's going on there? Uh, what's going on with Cairo, the programming language, the upgrades, uh, a lot of the, pro- the protocols and projects there? And then also just some general thoughts about DAOs and uh, kind of how you can get involved to help DAOs, um, how, how Peter has been uh, kind of consulting and working in the crypto space for some time now, kind of some of his general and specific thoughts as well uh, about the space. So looking forward to diving into this one. And of course, today I'm joined with Peter, uh, who has been spearheading uh, a couple projects uh, in the space since he joined. So we'd love to hear a bit about kind of your journey so far, uh, let our audience know kind of what you've been working on, and we'll jump right into it. So good to have you on, Peter, and uh, good morning. Yeah, great to be here. Uh, yeah, good afternoon. Um, I'm clearly one episode too early, but uh, hopefully the, the, the 99 is pretty cool as well. Um, yeah, so my Brief intro is I work on Yagi Finance, which is a yield aggregator on StarkNet. And then I also do consulting for Web3 teams. Peeling that back, I started working on crypto in 2018. Uh, I came from a mix of an engineering and management consulting background. So initially worked at uh, startups like Google and Twitter in California, uh, engineering and data science roles, then got involved with McKinsey as a management consultant, was basically building kind of spreadsheets and PowerPoints uh, for two and a half years there, working in different industries as a strategy consultant. And it was really fun to kind of step back from engineering for a bit and really try and pick up all the soft skills that I definitely lacked. Um, you know, also had a degree in mathematics, which made it even worse, right? So I really needed that, I think, kind of business school style experience. And then 
got involved with uh, product management when McKinsey acquired Quantum Black to do AI type work, started building products, built a open source library there. That's now a machine learning framework, part of the Linux foundation called Kedro, and just really enjoy the process of working on a developer tool as a product manager, thinking about kind of how to design the API and so on. And also just the impact of building an open source project, building a community and so on. And so it was a fairly natural transition to then, you know, getting exposed to crypto where I saw a lot of developers being able to have a lot of impact. And that was kind of one of the things that actually led me down the route of going into management consulting and product management, where I saw that I was somehow capped as a developer. And then in crypto, I saw people who generally have necessarily those skills, but still could like lead companies, do impactful projects. And, and that's what really pulled me in. And so 2018, I started doing consulting for various Web3 projects, really focusing on this developer tools idea, uh, specifically focusing more on security. So I started off doing kind of formal verification tooling, dived into debuggers, played around with using reinforcement learning to find bugs in Solidity, really a bunch of, a bunch of things uh, kind of to do with the EVM. And then as the space matured, and we kind of got into the bull cycle of 2020, started working more with small contracts, did a bunch of governance proposals, did smaller projects for teams working on kind of small insurance funds or vaults and, and things like that in DeFi. And then really late 2021 came across Starknet. And it was a kind of an inflection moment where I felt that I've learned, you know, a lot about smart contract development from really working on these projects but also felt like I wanted to learn about L2s. I was really excited about what was happening with zero knowledge. I saw Starknet had a completely different programming language. That seemed really exciting. And so it was like a perfect moment to basically start a project. And so I started working on Yagi as a yield aggregator for Starknet. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of had a similar um, understanding of, of layer twos around the same time kind of when Arbitrum really launched and I, I ended up bridging a lot of what I was doing over to Arbitrum um, and just testing it out. And, you know, I had been messing around on Avalanche and Phantom and things. So I was already sold on the idea of not doing all my transactions on mainnet, uh, but then Arbitrum, you know, with the kind of understanding of the, of the security um, and the speed and kind of the in, inheritance of the Ethereum, uh, Ethereum, Ethereum kind of network, if you will, um, you know, it, it, it kind of was obvious that that those were going to be superior to some of these other EVM chains that I was messing around in. And then, yes, uh, similarly, boom, Starknet hit, um, you know, and, and there happened to be this kind of strong community around Starknet at that time, uh, kind of around the same time, as, as you mentioned, mid-2021, uh, early 2022. Um, yeah, and it's really kept its shape all, all the way up until now, um, you know, and building pretty much just a variety of, of different D5 uh, protocols, um, you know, in this in this new language with the kind of ZK snark tech. Um, yeah, I mean, briefly for for our audience to start off, uh, I would love to kind of hear why you feel that uh, the ZK snark and, and the ZK tech of Starknet is superior to um, whether it be optimistic rollups or other forms of blockchain um, kind of uh, execution and settlement layers. Um, you know, in, in the least technical way that, that somebody could understand, if possible. Yeah, um, I think the, yeah, it's trying to go very non-technical. I would say at a high level, what's really exciting about ZK technology is that 
you know, kind of the, the kind of, I think going back to like, why are transactions expensive on Ethereum? Uh, they're expensive because effectively we're paying people to re replay the transactions many, many, many times over, right? And so that's kind of why Ethereum is more expensive than AWS, right? Something runs once on AWS, but if we play a transaction on Ethereum, we need a bunch of validators to just keep replaying that transaction. And so the idea behind ZK is instead of replaying the whole transaction, can we produce a proof that the transaction happened? And can we find a much more efficient algorithm to kind of run that proof and verify the transaction happened without having to rerun it? So we still get, you know, a large number of validators who are validating these transactions, but the validation process is substantially different. And it, and it happens by kind of validating these proofs. And so you can then get into what are the different types of kind of there's ZK snarks and there's, there's the ZK Starks, which are kind of two different systems. And Starks is really what uh, Starknet uses in particular and, and, and that were actually invented by the team behind Starkware. And the kind of high level comparison between Starks and Snarks, you can, you can actually look at them in many different categories. And it's, it's fairly interesting how it will play out in terms of which ones will matter. And I, I would say it's, it is somewhat use case specific because you can look at things like proof size, you can look at things like transaction costs, bandwidths, you know, all, all these different things. But um, the, the theoretical potential of, Stark, of Starks is greater, but the, the challenge is really of building a ergonomic ability to, to write Stark proofs. And so the, the kind of intuitive comparison is like, when you think about Z, ZK EVM, ZK EVMs are typically written in snarks because the mapping between like what we're doing on, at the EVM level and snarks is very direct. Versus if you're working with Starks, it is much harder to map it into kind of the programming language paradigm we're familiar with of mutable memory and so on that you know, Solidity provides access to. And therefore, if you want to kind of get the extra scale potential of Starks, unfortunately, you have to kind of build your own virtual machine. And so that's the hard work that the Stark and the team has done and really in building Cairo and building the whole stack behind Cairo to build a Stark native programming language to kind of help unlock that scale. And, and, and you know, it seems like, it seems like that would be a lot of non-necessary work. Like, why are we going through that trouble of creating a whole new programming language? Uh, when we have Solidity and like, shouldn't, shouldn't Solidity be kind of the JavaScript of the smart contract? Should, should we just use Solidity for everything? And I actually think the answer is no. And, and the reason, um, even though we, we may feel that, for example, today, uh, you know, Optimism, Arbitrum, all these platforms are fairly cheap, right? You can you can deploy smart contracts on them and they're just so much cheaper uh, to use than, than mainnet Ethereum. I think what we've historically found is that people exhaust kind of the scale that they're given and so if we look back at, at, at what happened on mainnet Ethereum, we started off with people experimenting with, 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 with all sorts of applications, right? We, at some point we had, you know, we had lending protocols that were storing loan books on chain, right? When that was affordable. And just eventually, as we start to kind of saturate block space, we naturally find that we saturate whatever efficiency is given to us. And so I think, and now if you're a good Solidity developer, Right, like well, as 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 we've seen with um, OpenSea, for example, that that contract was handcrafted with assembly. So all of a sudden, we're working in Solidity, but we're really not because we're we're actually jumping in. We're looking at Huff. You know, if you're doing any anything serious with MEV, you're probably coding in Huff. Uh, if you're writing really kind of serious high volume Solidity contracts, you're probably jumping into Yule. And so, kind of the the ease of use and the familiarity of Solidity is something we just end up foregoing anyways. And so at that point, it's fairly compelling to say, hey, no, we can we can jump on. The Cairo bandwagon and here use a language that's actually more high level, even easier to use in Solidity, has additional safety properties in the language, which we can dive into. 
um, and 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 actually be more efficient. So it just feels like a, an impossible trade-off, but it's one we're able to make today. Yeah, and I think that kind of thought process and messaging is going to be very important for really just onboarding people into Starknet and into the, the, this kind of realm of of thinking, right? I mean, ultimately, people don't really don't really care that much about you know um, you know the ins and outs of let's say like the the technological languages in the program, but what they care about is the speed and the cost, um, and also by by in inherent nature the security as well, uh, and so. You know, I think bringing this messaging for across the board for Starknet teams into mediums like such, um, you know, like the show or just kind of in easy to understand um, threads and posts and, and articles and things is going to be very key for kind of onboarding more people into understanding first why, you know, why this is happening. Why, why do we need to um, have cover? Why do we, why should I use Starknet? And, you know, I think you make quite a few good points. Uh, and from the developer side, um, most of the, de the developers that I've spoken to uh, with regards to Cairo also kind of are in the same boat, right? They, they think, you know, it's just a superior programming language as, as a whole, um, you know, and currently, obviously, there's, there's uh, Starknet is still in development as far as its uh, speed and transactions and its capabilities. But, um, you know, my kind of thought process is we're about a year or so out from ZK, uh, EVM, Polygon ZK, EVM, Starknet. Uh, ZK Sync and and the other kind of bigger ones, um, you know, really taking stride. And then I think that really gets us to a point where there's two things that I'm quite interested in hearing your opinion on. First is what does the world of rollups look like? Like we uh, are we going to have like dozens and dozens and dozens of different rollups, and you know, are we going to have um, different optimistic ones, ZK ones, you know, and potentially we can even dive into like how they might interoperate interoperate with, with each other. But then on the more, you know, kind of um, fun side, if, and I think that I would like to understand an explanation too, as far as decentralization of, of these rollups, we saw our, our, our Arbitrum launch their token, Optimism did too, Starknet has already um, hinted that they will, uh, and that they've already, you know, gone ahead and distributed some to different teams and things. So each of these rollups is going to have to decentralize their sequencer, which we can kind of unpack what that means uh, and decentralize and solve the kind of like the nothing at stake problem. So are all these rollups just going to have tokens as, as well, if we exist in this world with, with a bunch of rollups. So yeah, we'd love for you to unpack kind of is, you know, what's the future of these rollups, you know, how, or, or is there going to be just tons of them? How will they kind of interoperate? And then, yeah, how will they decentralize? Will there be a token uh, for all of them and kind of, you know, what, what's your thoughts on that front as well? Yeah, great question. And, and one that, you know, I wouldn't say I have the perfect answer to, I don't think anybody does, but it's, it's, let's try and speculate. I think there, there's a couple of directions this, this thing is developing in, and there's a couple of frames of reference to use. Um, one frame of reference is that is to sort of scalability lens of, of rollups, which is, you know, you make a rollup, you're effectively compressing, you know, end transactions into one, costs go down, bandwidth goes up and, and so on. And so it's purely a scalability play and one where you're basically trading off, um, you're potentially introducing some latency into the picture, right? So if you're minting an NFT on a rollup, it takes a bit longer for that N NFT to eventually kind of appear at the lower level of mainnet. And so, and the reason I'm kind of explaining it this way is I think because it 
partially explains why we have this idea of fractal scaling, where we have L1, we have L2, but then people are already building and thinking about building layer threes on top. And the idea is that we can kind of keep going further and further on this kind of pure scalability spectrum of let's just compress more transactions um, into, into, into less state while trading away potentially you know, some security properties or some latency properties in, in terms of having that guarantee of being able to eventually withdraw that, withdraw that money on layer one. So that's, I think, one angle uh, in which rollups are pushing, which is basically like whatever network they're under, just scale that network. But then there's kind of this computational diversity angle, which is, I, th I think, also super interesting. And I think we're just not at that stage yet where that's really playing out because most of the rollups that we're seeing are really scalability focused rollups. They're really focused on just general computation and scaling Ethereum as the narrative. But we've started these discussions, certainly in the StarkNet community, those discussions start up when talking about layer three rollups, because the question is, okay, you know, if StarkNet is the base network, are there some games or are there some other applications that required their own app specific rollups, right? And then the question is, you know, why did they require those? And then one idea is like computational niches. The idea that there's some virtual machine layout that is just better for a certain application, right? For example, for games, you can optimize for specific requirements. Maybe they need a lot of storage and then you just, you can really over-engineer the rollup to focus on that aspect of how to store specific state. We'll have obviously um, kind of, you know, with DYDX and, and other other types of order-based systems, rollups that are, that are targeted at that. You know, that's kind of how StarkX was actually born, um, which was kind of the precursor to StarkNet was actually um, well, a, a very specific type of rollup that was developed to um, help develop kind of AMMs and the different types of, um, um, sort of different types of DEXs basically. Um, so that's the second point. And so, and, and then there's kind of the third point, which is, which is the interplay of those rollups. Because again, if we go into a rollup and now we're in a world where the rollups are, are there because of computational niches, not just as general platforms, then, then all of a sudden we want some composability, like we're losing some composability, right? Because if you have to go to one rollup to play your game and then to another rollup to maybe access DeFi, and then you want to invest those gaming assets to get, generate some yield, now you have a problem, right? So we have this like third question of how do we start composing rollups? How do we start interoperating? And so obviously we have, you know, things like, you know, shared sequencers and, um, you know, there's all this kind of op optimization on, on, on L1 around, you know, how to make rollup transactions cheaper. So I think there's like a lot of research going on in that direction. I think mean, we have the perfect layout, but, but that's certainly going to be another trade-off of you can get very specific, but then where do you lose the composability to the rest of the ecosystem? Um, and I think that honestly, like the future is just going to be the interplay of these three factors and the trade-offs between them. And, and so it's very, it's going to be very domain specific. I think in gaming, we are probably going to see much more silos um, than we may see in DeFi where we really value the composability a bit more. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's ultimately very domain specific and hopefully we'll see a couple more domains, right? Maybe, you know, around the NFT space, there's going to be specific needs emerging there. Um, maybe we'll start to finally see, I think enterprise blockchains is another angle, which we've, we've, we've kind of forgotten about that part, right? We, uh, it was kind of around the time I, I started in, in blockchain 2018, I think enterprise blockchains were still part of the narrative. This idea that, you know, 20 banks could agree to deploy a private blockchain between themselves. I think now that that narrative is, is kind of falling by the wayside, right? We found there were several challenges with that. One was actually, there's no connection back to public blockchains. You know, we don't really, we haven't yet developed bridges that are really secure at connecting two L1s, right? Um, so there's a challenge there. 
But actually now that you think, well, what if, what if that private blockchain could be a rollup, let's say on top of an L2 or top of an L1, all of a sudden it starts to make more sense because you can, you can restrict that rollup to have a very limited number of validators or whatever rules you want around that rollup. And you can, and you can still access the underlying assets, right? So, all, so now those banks could settle with Ethereum or with stable coins and, 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 have, and, and not have to kind of build it all from scratch, right? Not have to kind of recreate the whole DeFi stack from scratch. And so I think private blockchains are potentially, you know, have a way of, kind of coming back through the rollup narrative. So I think those, you know, those are just some of the factors that'll play out. As far as your second question around the tokens, you know, it seems like, yeah, it seems like it's, it seems like most rollups are, you know, will need a token to decentralize. I think we could definitely see non-decentralized rollups that are going to be, you know, potentially for games, like not every rollup, maybe for a game needs to be decentralized. Um, and and potentially we're going to see maybe more creative structures, especially when one team develops multiple rollups. Perhaps you know they don't each need a, a unique token. Perhaps there's some synergy there. And and then again, in terms of in terms of that kind of vertical scalability piece, you know, if um if a network decides okay we need another rollup for people to make a certain latency transaction cost trade off, like maybe the, the same native token could just could just be used at, at that level as well. So I think a lot of considerations there. But I think for now, and, and to be honest, like. I think the, you know, one of the one of the appealing things with apps app specific networks, right? It's sort of if you if you make a really successful smart contract, you do a big token launch, and you have a massive DAO. Now, if you want to 10x that, um, what do you do? Well, so you look at DeFi Llama and you say, well, the only tokens that are bigger than mine are the ones from like L1s and L2s, and that's probably that's a lot of work to build a whole ecosystem around that. But what's kind of in between building my own L1 and building a smart contract? Well, it's building my app chain, right? So, so that's why I think a lot of teams also from purely, purely from financial perspective, probably look at app chains as an opportunity to really continue growing as a company. And so, so I think we'll definitely see a lot of tokens associated with rollups effectively in, in, the, in the short term, at least. Yeah, we, we've already seen um, app specific chains, like you're saying, for um, order book Texas, DYDX, and DGate is another one. They created their own ZK rollup specifically for their own order book decks. They're actually a sponsor and good, good, good longtime partner and friend of ours at the rollup. Um, and and I, and I think gaming is is also clearly clearly a, a a huge one too because, like you say, the financial aspects of of the game uh, perhaps less important than the uh, speed and then and the user experience versus and the security versus somewhere like. Um, you know, DeFi, uh, when, when you want to have kind of those money Legos working t together, um, you know, and in addition to that, make sure that everything is fully secure. And then on the three points of scaling, I mean, those are, those are really, um, you know, they're intuitive when you say them, but before you kind of think about them, um, you know, it's hard to kind of fathom what that looks like because it's really deep diving into the abstract. Um, and, and so it's, it's, yeah, it's a tough speculative call to make, but uh, inevitably we're going to see more and more uh, basically layers of scaling happen, whether it be layer twos of different layer ones. And then kind of, as you're saying, you know, rolling up even further uh, from layer twos to layer threes. So nonetheless, very exciting. And I kind of want to touch a little bit deeper on, on the token aspect and just kind of ask a broad question, hmm. like aside from grants and community incentivization and just, you know, making everybody happy and hype and making everybody feel good and giving everybody free money. You know, like why does Starknet need a need a token? 
Oh yeah, great question. I think I think generally, I think one of the if we look back at kind of the, the past six months around around Starknet, and we can summarize the narrative. I think a lot of people ran out of technical challenges to point to, because because initially, you know, I think Starknet Stark X was one of the, you know, in terms of just raw TPS and, and a bunch of other metrics. It was just, it was it was just on the leaderboard. Uh, in terms of rollups very early on. So the question just became, you know, can it turn into a general smart contract platform? And when the Starknet team proved, proved that uh, with, with, with Cairo, um, they, they showed that, you know, there's a language that can actually make it really easy to build um, these types of applications. So we started to run out of, 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 of different critiques of, of, of the community. And I think the one critique that remained is really still around scalability. I think the, the TPS is not matching what we had on StarkX. But there's a lot of improvements coming, I think, actually very, very soon that will probably within the next week or so that I think are actually going to change that. And so I think we've caught up on the TPS side, but it's taken probably 12 months to really make a dent there. And then the second concern was always around decentralization, which is like, well, you know, you, you guys are building all these really cool things, but the prover is not open source and the sequencer is not open source and it's all private. And it's like, you know, what's, what's going to happen with that? And so I think that's been like a lot of the focus also over the past you know, six to 12 months. You know, a bunch of those things are open source now. There's open source projects that have spun, you know, the modern sequencer, for example, to create independent versions of each of these components. But ultimately, there needs to be a governance process now to decide, right, what happens with all of that. So I think that's where the token comes into play. Into kind of the, the final piece to decentralize is really, you know, who's going to be working on those things? What are going to be the canonical versions, the canonical sequencers? What's going to be the canonical prover? And the final step is basically, you know, the token. And so that's why, you know, Starknet uh, now has a foundation. That's why a lot of the decisions around, you know, all the, the great things you mentioned, like grants, incentives, and so on, are now really moving into different committees uh, as part of the Starknet Foundation is because we're, you know, we're trying to decentralize the governance of the network. Taking a quick commercial break here to tell you guys about our lovely sponsors. Right before we get back to this fascinating discussion, we have a message from our current sponsors. Here we go. I want to take a moment to introduce you to our sponsor, Premia Finance. Premia is a native options protocol that offers market-driven pricing and capital-efficient returns for traders and liquidity providers. With Premia, you can trade options on a variety of different crypto assets. What, what sets Premium apart is its unique pricing mechanism, which is based on the market's expectation of future volatility. This means that options prices are always in line with market conditions, which provides traders with the most fair and transparent pricing. Recently, Premium has just launched their Options Academy, where you can learn for free how to become a proficient options trader. Uh, feel free to check it out at premium.finance. Um, hedge your risks or amplify your positions um, to earn more capital-efficient returns on premium finance. Thank you. And another exciting sponsor to introduce you is Plan of Finance. I've recently uh, on, been onboarded as an advisor for Plan of Finance, which is one of the first self-custodial wallets to support account abstraction. With Plan of Finance, you can revolutionize your crypto experience and take control of your assets like never before. Say goodbye to the hassle of managing multiple wallets. Hello to a seamless, user-friendly experience. Plan of Finance allows you to easily manage your assets, swap tokens, and earn rewards all in one place on your mobile phone. They have an app in the Apple App Store as well as in the Google Play Store. Uh, with Plan of Finance's self-custodial wallet, 
you hold the keys to your assets, ensuring the highest level of security and privacy. With tons of cool features like gasless trading, um, interesting yield competitions, and cool NFTs, there's an amazing amount of effort going into building this app that already has tens of thousands of users. So what are you waiting for? Download Planet Finance today and experience the future of crypto wallets. Yep, that's, uh, that's kind of the, the idea that I had as well. Um, you know, just wanted to confirm there because that, that, that seems to be the underlying issue when, when, when rollups launch without a token is there's this kind of uh, centralization of, of factors that are very important as well as, again, there's this kind of thing where uh, the validators of the rollup are ultimately um, not being compensated and also there's, there's that kind of, um, there's no token, so there's, there's no value at stake in the chain in, in the sense that if, if the team that was building behind the rollup somehow, you know, lost it all or went bankrupt or had a terrible fallout, there wouldn't be uh, any re repercussions for just kind of shutting down because, well, there's nothing at stake there other than kind of what's, uh, what, what I, I guess you call them hard assets have been bridged or are, yep. are kind of on, on the chain. So it, it, it gives the team and the community something to rally behind uh, in terms of actual value creation. And then, of course, yeah, the other kind of uh, community marketing BD type of things are much more enabled um, and you can, you can onboard a lot more talent uh, through grants and things like this. Um, so you're pretty excited about what's going on with the upcoming TPS upgrades, which, of course, I am as well. I've been using uh, Bravos and kind of all different types of applications on, on mainnet and testnet for some time now. And, yeah, I've noticed that, um, you know, the speed is still it's it's you know it's it's nothing close to arbitrum or kind of optimism or even some of these other layer ones but with this cairo 1.0 going live some of these upgrades happening um you know you're pretty bullish on that so yeah we would love for you to unpack kind of what's going on with cairo 1.0 what that's all about why it's important um to you and for the teams that are building on starknet and yeah what kind of um expected upgrades that, that we can uh, uh see come soon yeah absolutely so Cairo one is kind of the, the second big release of Cairo. Um, we, we call the old one Cairo zero and Cairo zero actually historically evolved, um, as a very low level kind of assembly language that was just a way to abstract the creation of these ZK proofs. And so it started super low level. Then when people wanted to build contracts on top of it, the team decided to create some higher order syntax that resembled Python on top of it, but it was never designed to be higher, higher order language. So there were some, there were a lot of conceptual challenges kind of working with, with Cairo zero. Um, the ecosystem was still able to recreate a lot of contracts that we see on mainnet and also, you know, try some new ideas using Cairo zero, but ultimately it was clear that that language was suboptimal. Um, and so Cairo one is kind of the, the, the from scratch rewrite of that. And I think what's exciting about Cairo One is a, is a bunch of things. So really, first, it's it's designed from the ground up to kind of have the a, a layer based approach where there's Sierra in, in between, and Sierra is kind of the intermediate intermediate representation. And what that allows the team to do is to really stabilize this sort of intermediate language, but then allow the higher level language to evolve very quickly. And so that without necess necessitating basically network level changes, right? So especially as we move to decentralization, that's just gonna be very, very useful as a property. And so kind of the, that's sort of from compiler architecture perspective, it's really a decoupling of starting as a network and then Cairo is the language that that enables. The second piece is kind of just 
you know, getting up to par in terms of ergonomics, where I, I, my experience with Cairo Zero was that it's, it was more difficult to, to develop in than Solidity. I think Cairo One definitely gets up to par. And then the more exciting is Cairo One actually incorporates many, many ideas that Solidity should be incorporating and, and basically feels much more like a regular programming language. And so that's where it starts to get exciting. Cairo One was modeled after Rust. So a lot of the syntax um, is similar to the language that has become a favorite language for backend developers in, in the crypto space recently, right? With the advent of Foundry and other you know, libraries on top of Rust. And so it's a very, very common language, but then really tailored for smart contract development. And then there's a bunch of extra things that you know, even I'm discovering recently digging into the language, such as, you know, turns out it has linear types, for example, that is actually something that very, very few smart contract languages have. The first one to really incorporate linear types and get popularity was Move. And obviously with the kind of whole resource model. So that's also very exciting, which is that Cairo One is actually now taking a step beyond Rust and, and incorporating more advanced type systems that are really going to help in terms of making contracts more secure. Um, so that's kind of the pure ergonomics piece. And then there's also the, I would say the development, the developer experience piece, which is hard to explain, but kind of one of the, one of the reasons that people were so excited about Foundry in the first place is that, you know, Solidity was really slow to work with. And so Foundry really allowed the development cycle to get a lot faster, um, purely because of just technical speed of how quickly you can run a test or how quickly you can compile the code and so on. And with Cairo, we're seeing an even order of magnitude improvement over, I think, what we saw with Foundry. And so that's the thing that gets me really excited where working with Cairo really feels like I'm just working with you know, C++ or Python or just regular programming language all of a sudden, not this really slow kind of smart contract environment. And so that's from purely a developer perspective, I think Cairo One is really exciting. And of course, all the things that that's enabling on the, the backend for the network is is kind of the the big unlock that allows kind of the TPS improvements and so on to continue cascading. And there's a lot of you know there's a bunch of pieces in the stack that are that are that are being experimented with now that I think are going to unlock further scalability. So for example, um, the the Lambda team is is building they're building a, a way to compile Cairo code to MLIR. And so MLIR is a system built to effectively help more effectively. Uh, compile TensorFlow at Google. And it's just sort of very, very advanced compiler framework where as long as you can compile things to MLIR, you can compile things to, to, to work really fast on hardware. And so now we move to a world where we don't need to kind of emulate the way Cairo works, but we can literally run Cairo in the same speed that we could run a regular computer program that's doing kind of non-smart contract related things. And I think that's gonna be a complete game changer for developers, you know, the, the more they, they uh, discover it. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That's uh, a whole leg up against kind of what else is being built out there. And I think a lot of the, a lot of the reason for uh, my general bullishness on Starknet comes from, comes from this aspect. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of more on, on the non-tech side, but I've, I've, I've done quite a bit of research and speaking with you and other people who are, who, who build with Cairo all kind of have the same thought process as far as a little bit tough to understand, this is Cairo Zero I'm speaking of, um, but once you get it, uh, the the possibilities become uh, much more innovative and limitless than other languages. Now with Cairo 1.0, kind of more um, familiar with um, devs who understand Rust or you know just overall an easier transition, uh, you know that kind of uh, conviction is is strengthened even further. And 
I'm curious, is account abstraction uh, enabled because of Cairo? Uh, or is that like a direct correlation? Uh, and briefly, if you could explain, you know, account abstraction for, for audience and why it's important uh, before kind of diving into that one. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the fun things about the Starkin ecosystem is that it's, it, it's, it's, it's trying to work towards overdetermined success. And what I mean by that is that there's, it, there's not like one thing it's, it's not like, oh, you know, Starknet has Starks and then it's just the minimum, like the minimum implementation of everything else. Like they, they weirdly try to innovate across many different levels. And, and so I think actually uh, account abstraction is, is, is somewhat independent from Cairo in the sense that you could, you could see account abstraction implemented in Solidity. And in fact, there's, there's, there's obviously active proposals for account abstraction to, to go live on many other networks um, that's being implemented on many other networks. Um, with with sort of practical challenges around adoption and so on. I think the difference with Starknet is they, they got it done really early and they basically established that as this is the canonical way that accounts are gonna work. So what is account abstraction? Really, it's a, it's a, it's a decoupling uh, of the account and the, the signing mechanism, I would say in simplest form. So in, 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 a, in, in tra traditional, in traditional non-account abstraction model or the, the end user account uh, model, you basically, you have an account and it has like a built-in signing approach where you need a private key and there's like a spe specific signing scheme that you need to use to validate transactions. And then account abstraction kind of decouples those things. It says you can have an account, that account can just be a smart contract and that smart contract, you get to define how transactions are signed uh, as the kind of developer of that smart contract. And so now if you, if you still just want to use private keys, you can build that with account abstraction. That's totally fine. But then you can also say, Hey, uh, let's, you know, let's allow this user to log in through Safari and let's use secure enclave and let's access that key and then use that key to validate their transactions. Right. So all of a sudden you can, you can make accounts of things that traditionally couldn't have been accounts. Um, whereas if you had to do that with, if you had to do that with, um, Ethereum kind of before account abstraction, you would always have had to generate that private key, right? So you want to create a throwaway wallet, you have to generate a private key. If you wanted to let users log in from another type of service, then the service on the back end would have had to create that private key, right? It couldn't have directly tied into the whatever the authentication mechanism it wants. So it's really a decoupling of the, you know, that allows many, many different ways of signing and validating transactions that are much more ergonomic, right? And and sometimes those things are just you know, there's going to be easier account recovery because you can involve your friends. Sometimes, you know, if you're playing a game and you need $5 to play the game and just buy the NFTs you need, like maybe you don't need a hardware wallet for that, right? Maybe you just want a really lightweight mechanism and you, you know, worst case, you lose that account for some reason, or, or you're willing to kind of take on some centralization risk, right? That this, this game provider, uh, maybe they're managing the account on your behalf. Maybe that's totally fine because um, the only thing that matters is if you do get a, a bigger NFT, that you can then migrate that to an account that's more secure, right? So just, just it just opens up the space of trade-offs. So, so kind of to summarize, you know, it, it I don't think it's it's necessarily you know it's coming from a, from from Cairo One. I think it's an independent feature that networks could adopt. We're starting with just really early in using account abstraction, and so I think we're we're seeing some teams like Cartridge, for example, just really uh, you know Cartridge are building a a platform for people to access different games, you know, it's, it, you can think of it as the steam for Starknet. And so their approach with account abstraction is they've been able to incorporate 
you know, your secure enclave on your Safari or on your iPhone to authenticate into that platform, right? So th those are the kinds of things that the Starkin community has been experimenting with for a while now. Yeah, yeah, it's good to know that that there's a difference there. Um, you know, a, a, a lot of all, I would say 99% of the account abstraction conversations um, that I've had have been with Starknet-based uh, teams or uh, industry leaders. So, um, you know, it's nice to know that that, that that could be separated. And I think really it's the future of wallets. I think the MetaMask experience kind of sucks. Um, and even like Rabi and other wallets are, you know, they're better, but they're still just not the same as far as um, different functions. And what, one of the biggest ones that really struck me was did a podcast with uh, Rohit from Jedi Swap months ago, and um, you know he touched on setting automation parameters for your wallet. So where you know you can have a setting in your wallet where you know let's say every week you set a, a, a parameter where your your wallet sends you know a thousand USDC to your your you know um, I don't know to to a different wallet. Or, or to, or it, it can automate a transaction for you, um, you know, without really you having to do much, but kind of set it up. Um, and, and, and the ability to have your wallet be a smart contract. I mean, you can do so many things with calls and with functions and with different um, types of interactions and transactions that just aren't really able to happen with a uh, kind of, uh, a normal wallet. So I, I kind of view account abstraction wallets as like a smartphone and um, the, the, the kind of the setup that we currently have is like, um, uh, like a, a, a wallet that's in your pocket uh, with credit cards and cash. So uh, very exciting to, to hear those takes and to hear some of the teams that are building about uh, using that technology and improving the experience for users, which ultimately I think is what it all comes down to. Uh, I think the users might not really care about um, the difference between Starks and Starks. I do. I think it's cool. Uh, I think it's very interesting. I don't think they, they'll care very much about the exciting ideas totally of why Cairo, you know, why Cairo 1.0 is great, right? They don't really care. But like when they can do these easy transactions on mobile wallets like Bravos or Plena or, or Argent, um, you know, and it feels so smooth and it's cheap and easy and there's tons of innovative functions, you know, then I think then I think they'll care, especially when, when they're profiting off of it. So I think it just kind of enables that next level of adoption. Um, you know, and that kind of brings us full circle into what you're building, uh, which I think could be very, very big. I think, I think Yagi could be one of the, the bigger projects on StarkNet by TBL as a whole. Um, you know, I've seen Beefy on, on Ethereum as well as on um, all the other chains get always have the best rates um, and be very, very reliable. And Beefy is another yield aggregator for those uh, who may have not heard of it. So, yeah, I'm curious kind of what teams you're thinking about building with. What are some of the yield strategies that you're thinking about implementing, whether it be DEX LP positions, um, you know, derivative DEX um, kind of debt pool type positions, um, you know, new token emissions, StarkNet token emissions. Kind of what, what, what are your thoughts around, you know, some, some of the yield opportunities that are going to be available in Starknet soon or you know are currently available now yeah um yeah i think you're i think you're absolutely right uh just gonna follow on from that i think that kind of abstraction is one of the kind of most exciting user facing things and that's ultimately kind of all that matters really is what do the users get at the end of the, the thing and um and i think our kind of abstraction is kind of part of you know a general transition that we're taking you know going through from users actually having to actively send transactions 
into the hot topic, which is intense, which is basically more generalized versions to define transactions. You know, perhaps instead of saying I want to trade, you know, uh, sell this asset on Uniswap, I just want to get rid of this asset at whatever I can get the best price. Really moving kind of at a more high level abstraction, and then I think the next version of that is really objectives, and, and kind of what I call passive finance, where you you where you really you don't actually want to be taking any actions, right? You ideally want to just deposit your money and have it grow over time, and then withdraw it when you, whenever you need it, right? And so so that's kind of what Yagi's there for. Um, for people who are familiar with yield aggregators already, um, it's it's the the kind of core differences with, with another yield platform, right? That um, like Yearn, for example, or other platforms like Beefy, is that you know one we're based on Starknet, so we're you know, fully focused on native Starknet yields. You know, big believers in Starknet, so um, that that's that's a core part. And we'll talk about what those yield opportunities are. The second piece is actually confusing the unique properties of Starknet to do things that were not possible on mainnet. And so one of those things is really moving more of the logic on chain. So the goal with Yagi is to really make it as trustless as possible. And so the goal is to you know, use as little oracles as possible, to use as little off-chain management as possible and really have it truly run as an autonomous contract. And you know, I'm a big fan of kind of index funds in the traditional finance world because they are very, like they do what it says on the tin, right? An index fund describes exactly how it's going to allocate capital, what assets it's going to use, and you know kind of what you're betting on. And then, you know, weirdly turns out that actually for most people investing in index funds tends to be much more profitable than trying to find, you know, active managers. And I think the same is going to be true in crypto where most people are just want to, you know, look at kind of what the strategy is and just deploying that strategy. So I think that's what, that's what, that's what Yagi can become with the properties of Starknet by making computation really cheap by making storage really cheap. We're going to be able to just put a lot of algorithms that currently happen off chain for many yield aggregators, such as, Hey, we have 10, 10, 10 kind of funds and we have some predictions on how they're going to return. Let's optimize the allocation between those 10 funds. I think we can put that on chain with Yagi. And then to answer your question about specific yield opportunities, um, the teams partnered with before on, on, on testnet were X bank originally to build a lending wrapper vault, uh, Jedi swap to build a two-sided liquidity vault. So this is a way to basically um, participate in AIM and liquidity provision without having both tokens. So if it's a DAI ETH pool, we built a two vaults, one where you, you can just deposit DAI, another one you can, you can deposit ETH, and then both depositors will get kind of merged together and we'll make a collective liquidity share for them, but they both get the same effectively return profile in the end. And then also on the more exotic side, um, did a little collaboration with Realms to build a kind of staking vault for their ecosystem. And, and I think those directions kind of very much describe what we're looking to do on mainnet in terms of really yeah, working with DeFi teams to build aggregations on top of, you know, finding the best lending yields across the different options, finding ways to provide liquidity in AMMs, um, and then also potentially partnering with gaming teams. And I think that's, again, we're, we're stuck and it's going to make that much more possible. On mainnet, what we saw is that there was not a lot of opportunity for people to really automate their participation in games. And it's something I think people have appetite for. We saw a prototype uh, with Abe Gachi. It was like an Abe Gachi uh, petting farm where you could, it was like a daycare where you could you could actually deposit your Abe Gachi and then the, the, it automated the petting action. I think with Starknet, hopefully we'll see much more sophisticated gaming economies. And I think we'll actually have vaults where you are going to have your you know game token resource and you're going to say, you know what, like 
I don't have time to play this game all the time, but I do want to have some automation happening while I'm not playing the game. And so it'll deposit into vaults for that reason. And, um, and, and so, yeah, so I think it's just really about, uh, and then the, the kind of the third piece you, which you alluded to as well is obviously rewards and, and tokens. And so I think to the extent that StarkNet teams are going to be, you know, launching tokens or creating incentives that are based on tokens, obviously it will be natural to build those strategies that, you know, automate the, 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 the harvesting or of the rewards and so on. So that's definitely something, you know, in terms of a yield aggregator, my, my big belief is that yield aggregators have to be very responsive to the market. You know, it's it's kind of a very different contract to build compared to an AMM. Or an AMM, you kind of build your contract and then you're done and you kind of think about the next version. Versus with a yield aggregator, you're, you constantly have to be putting out vaults that really capture the best opportunities available. So that's kind of, um, so, so, so part of this is like, you know, these are the things I'm looking to build, but part of it is actually, um, really seeing how the ecosystem is going to develop and we're going to respond to that. Amazing, man. I look forward to seeing it uh, come to fruition, especially with the up, the uh, upgrades in TPS um, and uh, Cairo 1.0, as well as just new new projects and developments on StarkNet. So um, yeah, man, it was an absolute pleasure having you on. Um, and uh, I, I, I look forward to seeing what you build again. And yeah, thanks for your time. Yeah, it's 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 been a pleasure. Great questions, and uh, yeah, I'm 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 very excited for the roll-up ecosystem. And I think you know, Starkin is just one of many teams in it. And I'm I'm also rooting for a lot of the other teams to succeed as well. Uh, don't get me wrong. I, I'm I think this is uh, the journey of scaling Ethereum is is a very exciting one, and one that's not it's not simply about again doing more of the same, but it's about all these different niches. Yep, hundred percent. Tons of roll-ups, tons of zk tech, tons of scaling. I look forward to it as well. So. Um... You're doing, keep doing your part. We'll keep doing ours and, and hope to see it uh, come back in a year or two's time and things will look a lot different. Awesome. Cheers, buddy. Thanks for listening to the DeFi by Design podcast. And a big thank you to all of our sponsors for their support. Please check them out in the links below as well as on our website and in our newsletter. We'll be back with more exciting guests and insights. Until then, stay curious, stay informed, and keep designing the future of DeFi.